you know, I think it really starts with our relationship with God, that we understand not only who He is, but how He is relating to His people, to His creation, that there's a sense of awe and wonder that infuses our lives so that we are able to be really discerning. I think discernment is a huge function of wisdom. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Otherwise Podcast, a place for gathering wise conversations on how to live well along the journey with Jesus. I'm Casey Tigert. I'm your host, and I'm coming to you from a rain-soaked Illinois. So you may, in the background, hear my sump pump firing or my ejector pump firing uh, to get all the water because it is, it is, as they say in the UK, it is chucking the rain right now. Um, so it's very wet. Anyway, um, you don't care about the weather. What you care about is what you're about to listen to. And I care about that as well. Our guest today is Ashley Hales. Uh, she has a new book coming out called Finding God, Finding Holy, not Finding God. It is Finding God, but Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Uh, it actually comes out tomorrow. The day after today, the day after, <laughs> the day after today, uh, the day after this podcast airs, her book comes out. So I'm hoping that you'll hear this and you'll immediately go to Amazon or wherever you get books and go uh, pre-order or buy a copy the day it comes out. That's a that's a great thing for Ashley, and it will help people to uh, recognize, get the get the word out about her book. But Ashley and her husband have planted a church in. Um, in Southern California. And she is also a PhD in literature. So you're going to hear some of that. We're going to talk about some great books in this conversation. Um, what I loved is just, this is a conversation that I don't, I don't know that I've had before, which is talking about how do you find holy spaces, even in places that don't necessarily seem like their fertile ground for holy spaces. Like, you know, the suburbs, we, we don't form a lot of relationships. Like I live in the suburbs, so I can, I can speak to this. Like we, forming relationships sometimes is tough because we drive into our garages and we close the, close the door and we sort of have our own private space and there's nothing wrong with private space. Uh, but there is that sense of how do we create spaces in our neighborhoods and our homes where we might encounter God and encounter each other as well. So without further ado, my new friend, Ashley Hales. Well, Ashley, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. You are most welcome. So you've so there's a bunch of things going on. We've talked a little bit about this. We've got a book coming yep. out the twenty third of October tomorrow. So before we even get into anything, everybody just pause the podcast, go order your copy, get that yes. done for today, and then yes. come back and listen to the conversation so that you'll be really excited. Uh, but you also are going to start a podcast. I am. Called, yeah. called Finding Holy. Tell me about this idea because, you know, with the two of us doing the same thing, it, it'd be interesting to find out why you decided to do that. Yeah. I think in some ways, podcasts has become kind of the new blogging. And I think as a writer, it's super easy to just be stuck in your little space, creating your words and shoving them out on the internet. And the idea of getting to sit down and make this a more collaborative conversation is super appealing to me. So the whole point behind Finding Holy is to sit down with folks and to chat about things that matter, things that are big ideas, but to actually figure out how those dots are connected between those ideas 
and our actual practical everyday lives. Yeah. Yeah. So practical everyday life is something that we talk a lot about because this podcast is a lot about wisdom. Mm. And uh, so as a mom, a mm-hmm. wife, church mm-hmm. planter, mm-hmm. PhD, yep. author, yeah, pod, lots of things. podcaster, Mm-hmm. Are you are you a, a circus performer? I mean, you got to finish the list here. Whatever whatever else should be added there. Spinning plates. I don't know. <laughs> uh, talk, talk a little bit about. I I ask this question pretty frequently because I'm so interested in where people begin. Mm. Um, if you had to define wisdom, if you had to define the idea of wisdom, where would you start? I wouldn't throw mm. it on you to make the whole thing right now, but where would you start? Hmm, that's a great question. I think. Defining wisdom, I feel like there's a lots of things that obviously work into a definition, but, you know, I think it really starts with our relationship with God, that we understand not only who He is, but how He is relating to His people, to His creation, that there's a sense of awe and wonder that infuses our lives so that we are able to be really discerning. I think discernment is a huge function of wisdom so that we're able to be discerning, you know, how do I interact with this situation, with this issue, with these people, this place in ways that are empathetic and thoughtful and for the good, not only of me and this person, but also for the larger story of God that we find ourselves in. So discernment and empathy are Mm -hmm. incredibly thoughtful kind of traits are Mm -hmm. those uh, talk about how you've seen those play out as far as the wise people in your life how have they they displayed that discernment Mm -hmm. that empathy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean i think one one person i keep coming back to is my sister-in-law who she's a little bit further along in the parenting journey and life journey than i am and so to to watch her go through life well they've lived kind of all over the world they've parented two children Um, And to see her not only to dispense wise counsel to me is not, it never feels pushy and never feels like she has an agenda. I feel like she is always someone who is able to engage questions of meaning uh, in my own practical everyday experience with me, not as like this advice dispenser. And so she becomes a really safe place for me to be able to process failure and to process big ideas that they're not going to be written off. Um, And my husband is like that as well. And so I feel like having those safe places, uh, those safe people to begin to open up questions and doubts and fears uh, and to be listened to and heard, and which often comes through suffering and hardship, um, makes me more apt to engage with people like that. So wisdom itself has there's a sort of relationship component to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so there's a need to be heard. There's a need mm-hmm. to have someone, I mean, discernment is so much easier when you got somebody to bounce stuff off of and say, mm-hmm. I think this is, but I don't know. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's and there's a sense of like collaborative listening to something that's bigger than yourself. Yeah. Well, that's interesting to me because your book uh, is called finding holy in the suburbs and the suburbs 
traditionally are not known to be the most collaborative places on earth um, <laughs> because we have garages and right? we have automatic doors. And yes, how, how did you wander into the world of carrying this definition of wisdom, but also mm-hmm. talking about uh, suburb? Because the last book mm-hmm. I remember on the suburbs was Death by Suburb. Right. And so that that's a little more negative. Then. Right. <laughs> like, I feel like reading yours a little bit more because I don't feel like I'm going to die because I right. live in the suburbs. So it is. Yeah, it is very hopeful. And that's kind of the feedback I've gotten from launch team and early readers and endorsers is it's both critical and um, very hopeful. And I, I am I love that because I think I have a bent towards cynicism in a lot of ways, um, but also can be ridiculously and naively idealistic. And so for me to kind of ride that line in my book um, was tremendously encouraging. But I think for me, as far as a very practical way that I have tried to both be critical of the ways that our places define our loves that move us away from God and the life, full life that he's called us to, and, um, and to actually love the place and not simply be cynical about that, about, you know, the garage doors and the busyness and the let's upgrade our kitchens is really just to walk my place. We take, we walk our kids to our local public school. We, um, you know, we try to be out in the neighborhood. Like we try to, we schedule time to like actually walk around and say hello to people and try to develop relationships. And I feel like that has helped me to increase my empathy for the place rather than to kind of paint it with a broad brush of everyone's superficial here. Everyone's only cares about themselves and it helps me kind of get to know and be kind to those people. And then that helps me to figure out how best, where does the gospel fit in, in those busy lives without just saying, well, they're busy and stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cause that's not helpful. No, no, no. <laughs> that would not be the wise remark. Yeah. So the inter the interaction of loves and places, and mm. I've noticed that throughout throughout your book. the The one thing it makes me think about is how deeply place is wired into mm. uh, the Old Testament, mm, uh, mm-hmm. and even the New Testament. That mm-hmm. geographical spaces have this mm. this character, this holy presence. Um, yes. Is that is that what you're hoping for? As you talk about this, the kind of, you know, the the Celtic tradition talks about thin mm-hmm. places, places mm-hmm. where God is mm-hmm. more present than others. Mm-hmm. Is that what you see, or is that is that uh, does that not click with what you're? Mm-hmm. Kind of casting? I like that. You know, I would hope that people at least would be a, a, awoken to the idea that yeah, their cul-de-sac could be a thin place. You know that um, that the spirit of God can move no matter where we are, yeah, you know, that there are particular sacred places and, you know, architecture informs us and city planning informs us. And I think the tragedy of the suburbs is that I don't think we have become as a culture cognizant of that, the ways that architecture has formed us, or even just the way that our streets are laid out um, or where our front yard is and backyard. And so I think the challenge of the book is simply to say like, to wake up, to find that we can find holy in our cul-de-sac if we're if we have eyes to see and i am praying that the book will will open will be one way that god uses to kind of open our eyes that we might yeah that we might explore what does it what does it look like to get to live a godward life right here that i don't have to you know 
do the pilgrimage. I don't have to go to a monastery for a silent retreat to experience God. And those things are important. But if we're not figuring out how to experience God, you know, with soccer practices and, you know, our target runs, we're not actually living Godward. Yeah. It strikes me that um, the language of place a lot of times, especially for Jewish theologians, is tied also to the, the mm-hmm. concept of time. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham Heschel, when he talks about Sabbath, is it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a discussion of time and space mm-hmm. and place. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously with a family, uh, with a you know, ministry life, mm-hmm. this is not just about the suburbs, but it's also about how you, and you use the word ordering, the mm-hmm. very St. Augustine word ordering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what did that look like to have to order your, your and your family's life towards finding these, these holy space? Yeah. In terms of your time, maybe your, your rhythms and practices that you had to do. Mm-hmm. How did you, how mm-hmm. did you start to do that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've done it obviously well and then horribly. You know, I feel like when we first moved to the suburbs to start a church, we were frenetic and, you know, quick, there's neighbors, go meet them, you know, like invite them to something. Have Take them, them a pie. Right. Now go, <laughs> you know, put the kids outside. Let's go play. And um, obviously we, we had the sense of we were orchestrating our own time and it was very self-focused and anxiety ridden. Um, but I think as we have kind of settled in and given up that desire to be masters of our faith <laughs> and just realizing we're not, um, I think to see, I mean, we've done just very practical things like, um, you know, what are the dates on our calendar that we pray through every month, my husband and I, and where we haven't done this consistently, but you know, if there's, Hey, it looks like for this sports season and everything that we have Fridays and Saturday mornings or something booked, but we have Mondays and Sunday nights that we can have people over. So where, where do I go grocery shopping, you know, so that I always have stuff for spaghetti or a pot of soup on a Sunday night if someone shows up and, and to be open to those spaces where you are, you are needed to show up in someone's life, um, in just really practical ways, like making sure your pantry stocked with cheap food so that you can have people over um, is one way that we have tried to order our time to be hospitable and outward focused. Um, Yeah. And, you know, my husband's like our neighborhood representative and, you know, like spending time giving back to the community um, in ways that are not huge amounts of our time, but can be really countercultural. Like, hey, our church does a free babysitting night for parents and a free parenting seminar because we're with a lot of young families and allowing other, you know, to give our time towards people connecting is important. Yeah. So I, where I'm recording today, I live Mm. in the Southwest suburbs of Chicago and Mm. we have a really interesting dynamic in that a lot of people in our area uh, never really moved away. Mm, so mm-hmm. where you have some big cities that have suburbs that are filled with people from other places. Right. We still have people who live close enough to hang out with their high school friends mm. on the weekends or they live with We have that a bit here too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, mean, so that's yeah. what I was going to say. Describe a little bit about, because every book is written in a culture and a right. context. Talk a little bit about your, what's your suburb? Yeah, so we are in Southern California, South Orange County, and my husband was born a few miles away from where, from our current home, and I went to a Catholic high school up the street, and I have run into several of those classmates 
living where we do. <laughs> and it's called Ladera Ranch. It was one of these, uh, it was built kind of in the heydays, early 2000s, where like master plan communities were, you know, it's supposed to be more green and thoughtful. And yet, you know, we have pools around every corner and big wide walking paths. And now after the housing crisis, they don't quite build them the same way. Um, but yeah, I, so I really do think that a lot of my book was formed on walking these paths. Uh, the model homes came out, my husband and I visited them like in college, uh, just to see, cause we like doing all that kind of stuff and to realize like this whole place wasn't here when we grew up here. Um, and it's just fascinating to think about how new cultures are formed from new places. So yeah, it tends to be pretty affluent. Um, and so I, the kind of my own spiritual journey is to figure out how to, how to not shame myself for not being in a more quote unquote diverse spot and to actually recognize the diversity that there is, that the narrative of the place doesn't seem to show, but is actually there. Um, and to also begin to grow compassion in me for those affluent middle-class suburban people that their brokenness might not look the same as other places, but yeah, it is still there. Yeah. Is there a, is there a story that really characterizes that best for you? Like an experience you've had in your, in your neighborhood that sort of captures like, Oh, this is who we are. Who, who we are or like who the neighborhood like yeah, is. Who, who, who the neighborhood is. Fourth of July here is, it feels like Main Street USA and like everybody, like the amount of that the HOA spends on the fireworks display and there's, you know, vendors and there's like you decorate your tricycle and they're, you know, for the parade in the morning and there's a 5K and a 10K and a 1K uh, run that like everyone does because they're super fit and athletic here because we're in Southern California and yeah, it's, there's something beautiful about it. Um, you know, that there's events and everyone's having potlucks and there's bounce houses like for 10,000 houses. Um, and people move here because of things like that, or like the outdoor summer concerts where everyone, you can bring your wine and picnic and be out with your neighbors. And it becomes this kind of idealized version of what community looks like. And it's beautiful. And I think for me to realize there is something beautiful about that, but there's also something so broken about it that like there's only a certain income level that can afford to have these sorts of things or that, you know, that we're not, you know, who's a part of the cool crowd to get to invited to this, you know, whatever cool block party. Um, and to realize a lot of it is totally fabricated that, you know, it's, we do this on the 4th of July, but the rest of the summer, the rest of the year, we are, we're consuming community in the same way that we normally just consume our activities. Um, and so I think for me to choose as a spiritual discipline to enjoy that, um, but also realize like this is just a foretaste of what true community could look like, of what actual vulnerable, you know, gospel centered community could look like. And so how am I doing stuff in really kind of low bar ways to begin to try to develop that amongst my friends and neighbors. And so I've recently started praying with a friend. Um, she doesn't go to our church, but uh, she's a believer. And we we just pray together. We meet in each other's houses, no matter how messy they are, um, and just support one another. And that has become one way where it's just like, this is normal. There's no like fancy anything. 
there's no planned anything, but it's a way to show up for each other and, and be real. Yeah. So, so when you're talking about finding, finding holy, that also means you mentioned a little bit, it, it probably means that before you find that you're going to find the difficulties, the brokenness, the challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you hold that intention? I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're talking about a community that sounds like a television show, yeah. and but you're also talking about a community where uh, the issues of poverty, the issues mm-hmm. of, um, you know, a lot of times we can, and I, I would say that about my suburb too, mm-hmm. we have enough money to insulate ourselves yes. from real life. Yes. Uh, how do you straddle the tension of those two things? Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like it's always a challenge where I don't, I I feel like I'm not doing enough or, you know, am I giving back enough? Am I in proximity to the poor? And I feel guilty about that. Or, you know, I read someone's great book about that they live amongst refugees. And I'm like, I live with fancy moms who drive suburbans and wear Lululemon. Like, how am I loving God? I don't know. Um, And I think, I think to realize that I think for us, at least it'd be okay, we're just going to start small. We're going to start with our actual neighbors on our actual street uh, to, to investigate what that looks like. And so that has meant, you know, I had a friend and then she went through a horrible divorce and walking through with both of them through that um, brokenness. Um, We've had a lot of single dads show up at our church because somehow we've kind of communicated that we are a safe place for people to be people. Um, so I think a lot of it is just being willing to dive into the suffering that is, even if it doesn't feel like drastic, you know, no one's getting deported right around me or no one's, you know, there may not be people who are struggling with homelessness or, you know, dire poverty. And yet there are, there's brokenness to human relationships. So how do I show up for that? So that eventually Lord willing, we'll be able to kind of work with that and say, hey, look, you could bring your brokenness to, to us and to God. And so who else needs us? You know, who else can we show up for? And I'm, I'm praying that as we are actually very close to where we actually are in our places, that that, that will grow, you know, so that we're not just driving across town to hand out stuff to people, but that we begin to embrace people who look a lot different than us. Yeah. So any book starts with, uh, you and I know this from experience, it starts yeah. with seeing a need. Mm. You see something and you say, there's a, there's a gap here where no one's mm-hmm. saying what needs to be said. So you mm-hmm. felt that. Now you, you've gone through the whole process and it's, it's getting ready to go into the wider world, which means yes. you can't take any of it back now. So right. <laughs> you know, just take a deep breath and gulp. But Yes, I know. There is one story where I was like, oh, talk about like... The team moms and you know, like what if these people read my book? <laughs> you just put out a blanket warning, like I don't uh-huh. mean you. Right, it's a this different. Is, this a is trope. not you guys. It's another. <laughs> it's another person. Yeah. But in the middle of that, obviously, you you start speaking into an area and it changes you. Mm-hmm. How have you changed in the process of speaking into this need mm-hmm. that you saw? How has it changed you? Maybe your mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. I think it's allowed me, you know, I wrote in the very end of the book. Um, and obviously, for people who don't know, a book takes a few years to get published. So like the the fact that I wrote this at the end of the book was not recent. It was like a year or so ago. But um, 
was, you know, I, I think I said something like I had hoped that kind of at the end of this book, I'd have kind of figured out all my issues, you know, that I'd be able to sprinkle these stories like seed and it'd be like, great. And now I have found holy in the suburbs and all is well. <laughs> but I think I've realized, and this is still true today, that, that there is still a, a longing for home. There's a longing maybe even to be in a different place still and that that's okay. Um, and that I get to bring all of that. Uh, to my people, to my place, to God, and trust that He will do something with them. Um, and so I think, you know, it, the book really came out of um, my own struggle with moving back to the suburbs, moving back home, um, kind of, and then realizing I kind of think I thought I was too good um, for the suburbs. Like, you know, I've moved away and I've lived overseas and I have a PhD, and obviously God wants me to do amazing big things for Him, and this does not count as that. <laughs> And so it really became a way for me to reckon with you know, my individual calling and is God still good, even if I don't really like my circumstances, which was a horribly selfish and privileged position. Um, and to realize I can actually practice in my body, in my place, disciplines that will draw me towards other people and towards my place in compassion as a discipline, not just because it feels nice and fuzzy for me. Um so, and I also think it was also a reaction a little bit against, in my circles, um, a lot of the kind of missional language comes from, is quite urban, um, like Tim Keller and Redeemer in New York City. And I think it's kind of, I think really he's just trying to contextualize Jesus to his culture. And I don't think he's particularly thinks that cities are somehow better than other places. But I think that's, often been the effect is that somehow you're more holy if you live in a city or if you live in Africa. And I just wanted to actually explore that and say, I don't think that's the case. Or like, it, it can't be the case. If God has called us here, it can't be the case that the only place he can use us is in a city. Or like, if we're quoting Wendell Berry, like on some rural commune. And, and please feel free to quote Wendell Berry as often <laughs> as you would like. <laughs> He's good. But, but you're right. There is, a, you brought up Berry. And I think one of the things people struggle with, with if they've read, and of course, if you're listening, you haven't read Wendell Berry. What are you doing? Oh. With your, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> Second, um, go read anything, especially novels. But yes. the one thing that comes out is this sort of very romantic picture of, rural communities. I was mm -hmm. a pastor. I was a pastor in a rural community. Mm. And there's some beautiful stuff. There's also some really mm. difficult stuff. Mm. And I think that same could be said of the suburbs. You know, yes. there's an ease, but mm -hmm. there's also a dis-ease. Mm -hmm. um, and yet that context. So I think that's important that you said that uh, because context is where we get tripped up in the mm -hmm. whole conversation of faith, whether it's mm -hmm. the original context of the scriptures or the context of um, where we are mm -hmm. you know, to mm -hmm. say you you have to you have to listen to the to God's calling where you are. You mm -hmm. have to practice disciplines where you where are. you are. Yeah, I think I like I love all the big ideas and all the thoughts and like let's do this grand overhaul of my schedule or my closet or my spiritual disciplines or my diet and to realize that there's a lot of there's lots to be learned about just being faithful and showing up in your moment in your place, in your time. Yeah. In the skin you're in. Yes. I think, I think it's mm. important. That's that's my definition of spiritual formation is being mm. like Jesus in the skin you're in. Mm, I like it. 
and I have friends that flip out about the Enneagram and say, oh, it's just a, you know, it's just a passing fad. I'm like, well, right. but if it helps us know us, right. we're more informed on the context. Right. And why you are, you know, afraid of parties or why you can't stop talking in public or... And my yeah. wife will tell me, you know, you go to the gas station and you come home with three new friends. <laughs> yeah, why is that? Yeah. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah. So obviously writing a book, uh, doing a PhD, there is a, you've had to do a lot of internal, that kind of work is like hunker down, shut the blinds. Yes. You and a computer and a big stack of whatever. Yep. Was it difficult to sort of move then from a what what the disciplines writers would call disciplines of detachment to disciplines of attachment where you're mm, connecting mm-hmm. with people was mm-hmm. that difficult for you to do no i also like being in front of a microphone and talking <laughs> um but and I they think, can't see you but that's exactly what you're doing right now yes so i know you're in your zone it's so fun <laughs> uh it's, yeah anyway we don't need to psychoanalyze that but um i do think I've enjoyed it. It becomes at some point in, in every writer's journey where the, the book is less about oneself and one's ideas and words and arguments. Um, and it has to be something that's given as a gift to its reader. And I think that's what's one thing that's beautiful is it takes so long to publish a book that it's beca- it becomes it by, by virtue of the time it takes, it's less attached to the meaning of the author's self. Um, and so I like to think that I'm going to do quite well with uh, negative reviews, or, um, but we'll see. <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I'm encouraged that it, I'm just hopeful it starts conversations. Um, I, I do, honestly, that's why I have a PhD in literature. I think stories can actually change the world. <laughs> and maybe that's completely naive, but I mean, the Bible is a story and we're reading it th- thousands of years later and, you know, that God entered into our flesh and, you know, that that is a story. And I guess there is so much about stories that have captured my own information in my own imagination, rather, that I, I can't see how, you know, I pray that there is something in my book that is a nugget for someone to kind of follow on their own journey home that, you know, that, that will awaken their imagination for things of God and, and their place. Yeah. So ultimately, at the end of this, there's there's a one, there's a desire for you to have people capture story, mm-hmm. um, to capture a sense of place, mm-hmm. and how they might find God where they are. Is there is there something else in there that maybe you've you've always carried in your mind about? And mm-hmm. and you know what? If they also got this, that mm-hmm. would be fantastic. Well, I think two things. One is I would love it if people somehow got it into their bodies if it became something practical. You know, I do at the end of every chapter, there are kind of very practical takeaways, counter liturgies to the idols of the suburbs. And there are practices of living out your faith in the suburbs, like hospitality and vulnerability and generosity. I would love it if someone actually, those weren't just pretty words at the end of the page, but they actually chose to do this as a spiritual practice. Um, so that is my hope that people would actually do something with it. <laughs> um, as much as I love to talk about all the ideas and want people to have this great experience of the reading process, I would really love it if it actually changed something. Yeah. Um, and then I think my last chapter is called glory. And 
um, my husband was just talking about doing a series on beauty and glory in 2019 as a preacher. And I was like, oh, yes, because there's something so innate in all of us that are longing for glory, for longing for home, um, and not necessarily to puff ourselves up, but that we want, like Lewis talks about, to be caught up into something, into beauty itself, um, that we will be on the other side of the door he talks about in the weight of glory. And like that just gets to all of my existential longings. Um, you know, reading good works of literature does that too. And I think that I, that will be a theme I imagine I will always be circling around. Idols of the suburbs. Mm. Wow. <laughs> That's a chewable one. We're gonna have to, yes. I'm going to have to chew on that. And plus, there's plenty of, we've talked about plenty of books that need to go in the show notes that people need to check out from Wendell Berry to yes. C.S. Lewis. And um, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Casey. It was really fun. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Yeah, and I think this will be helpful for, because I I do believe the majority of the people who listen to this are suburbanites as well. And, mm. and this is this is a moment for us to pause and, and peek into something important. So mm. thanks for saying something where no one was saying something. Oh, you are welcome. Happy to. How about that? It's good to talk with Ashley and good to make that connection. If you enjoyed what you heard, uh, make sure to go and you can check out some of the books we talked about in the show notes. Uh, I will put those some links there. You can also, uh, I would encourage you go and order or pre-order depending on when you do that, when you hear this. Uh, her book, uh, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, uh, check out her website. She also does some coaching and speaking. So if you are looking for a voice that can speak to some various issues, um, you can find all of that, like what kind of topics she speaks on and what kind of coaching that she does. Uh, you can find that on her website as well. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, it makes it worth doing this to know that you're out there listening to this. Thank you uh, to everybody who's listening who has commented to me that they listen and has said, hey, this was really good, or hey, you know what I'd love to see is this. I really encourage that. If you need to or you want to, uh, hopefully you need to, but if you want to make that kind of comment, uh, you can always reach me through my website, caseytigret.com. Uh, if you're streaming this through my website, I, I love that you're doing that. That's awesome. If you have the chance to subscribe through iTunes, iTunes. I would love it if you did that. Also, if you don't mind dropping a review or a rating, if you like it, if you don't email me and tell me why, but if you do like the podcast, uh, make sure to rate and review it on iTunes. That would be super helpful for me. So with all that said, we've got another episode coming next week. So my friends, as we go, be well, live wisely. Peace. <music>